when I think about the 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 world of education, uh, the the sector, the reality is is that much of the education sector is actually not an education sector. It's a certification sector, and the drive to certify oftentimes comes at the expense of educating. It primarily defaults to this idea of testing recall of knowledge. And we know that when the same type of tests used to certify are given in different circumstances, meaning three or four months after the end of a quote unquote educational experience that the certifying tests are supposed to certify, the same student that would get an A could get an F. And that is because the learner didn't actually learn. They were able to do what it what it takes to pass the certification, but they didn't actually absorb the intended goals. And what's worse is that the intended learning is also quite wrong uh, in the sense that when we think about our day-to-day lives, we don't live in academically compartmentalized worlds, right? We don't experience the uh, evolution of history without the impact of science, right? We don't go about the world of uh, commerce without understanding its effects on society, right? These are not distinct fields in any stretch of the imagination in the real world. And why that matters is that it's not that historical concepts or scientific concepts are uh, not important, they're extraordinarily important. The problem though, is that you need to apply them in non-historical or non-scientific contexts. And that's the ultimate failing of education. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You, where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher ed, and we speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. Today, it is a pleasure to welcome a transformative leader, the founder and CEO of the Minerva Project, the academic institution that is reinventing higher education from scratch, Ben Nelson. Ben, welcome to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. We usually start our interviews by asking our guests about their career paths. And you have had a remarkable career across what I would suggest is a relatively short lifespan. You've been described by others as a visionary, entrepreneur, and an innovator. And so I want to start out. I'm curious when you first realized or when you maybe first thought of yourself as an entrepreneur. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because uh, uh, pe people don't don't quite understand this about me. I I'm uh, a very cautious uh, a person, so I I didn't even think of myself as an entrepreneur, and even until after I started Minerva, um, mm -hmm. I, the what I've always done in my career is work with early stage enterprises. But they were never my idea. Um, even the, the the companies that I ran were ones that were started by other people. And I came in and helped them go from idea to reality, from small to large scale, uh, et cetera. And when I was thinking about what to do in the next chapter of my life, which is when I started Minerva, my default assumption was not that I would start my own thing because I'd never done that before. Um, but when I, as the more I thought about what I wanted to do uh, with, uh, with education, realizing first that I wanted to be in the world of education and what I want to do, I realized that nobody else had the idea that I wanted to build. I, I actually had to uh, in, create my own concept uh, I was always very shy uh, about stepping into that that kind of zero to one phase, uh, which turns out wasn't particularly difficult, but <laughs> but, it, but it was intimidating for me just because I I, I didn't uh, I'd never done it before. Mm. Well, and you have indeed received a lot of attention within the higher ed world for doing just that for the university that you founded, Minerva. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us about, about Minerva? What is it? Uh, where did the idea come from? How is it different from other universities, colleges? And I think maybe most critically, what was that dream that you had uh, that you wanted to achieve through Minerva that led you to, to finally step out and say, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. Well, you know, maybe it's easier to explain the dream first and, and the purpose of Minerva and then uh, explain what it is and how and how it's different. So sure. when when I think about the 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 world of education, uh, the, the sector, the reality is, is that much of the education sector is actually not an education sector. It's a certification sector. And the drive to certify oftentimes comes at the expense of educating. It primarily defaults to this idea of testing recall of knowledge. And we know that when the same 
type of tests used to certify are given in different circumstances, meaning three or four months after the end of a quote unquote educational experience that the certifying tests are supposed to certify, the same student that would get an A could get an F. And that is because the learner didn't actually learn. Mm -hmm. They were able to do what it, what it takes to pass the certification, but they didn't actually absorb the intended goals. And what's worse is that the intended learning is also quite wrong uh, in the sense that when we think about our day-to-day -day lives, we don't live in academically compartmentalized worlds. Right? We don't experience the uh, evolution of history without the impact of science. Right? We don't go about the world of uh, commerce without understanding its effects on society. Right? Th these are not distinct fields in any stretch of the imagination in the real world. And why that matters is that it's not that historical concepts or scientific concepts are uh, not important. They're extraordinarily important. The problem, though, is that you need to apply them in non-historical or non-scientific contexts. And that's the ultimate failing of education. Because even what education purports to do, even what it tries to certify, are the application at best of particular concepts of fields within those fields. But that's not how the actual world works. The actual way the world works is by taking a particular core piece of knowledge and applying it in novel contexts, in a situation you've never encountered before. That's what is colloquially known as wisdom. And so long as institutions don't center on wisdom, they cannot educate. And that was the, the driving thrust behind Minerva. And so when you set up a university, to answer your, your first question, whose focus is to nurture critical wisdom for the sake of the world in its very applied practical sense, you have to look at the component parts and ask yourself, on based on first principle, does the component part satisfy that mission, right? And that's what makes Minerva different. We looked at who should universities educate. And it turns out if you want to nurture critical wisdom, you really shouldn't do it just for the kids of the rich. Um, which despite all of the protestations, need blind universities do. They serve rich kids overwhelmingly, um, even you know, to an extent where if they were actually need aware, they would be much better at serving diverse uh, uh, student bodies. And so we, we, we change the nature of who we educate. What is educated, uh, again, is not anchored in context. It's anchored in concept that is cross-contextual. Uh, and we developed an entire curriculum 
to uh, to provide a, a set of cognitive tools, a common intellectual language that our students are able to apply in any field, but in any walk of life as well. The way in which you teach, uh, the pedagogical approach is one that is active and participatory and make sure that students learn and retain information. In fact, grow in mastery after they, they finish uh, their formal learning as opposed to have that mastery fall off a cliff. And then where they learn uh, was reimagined in the sense that rather than having students go to a campus being removed from society, we wanted our students to experience the various contexts that the world has to offer. So our students will live in seven different countries by the time they graduate. They will uh, immerse in understanding transfer, not just from one academic field to another, but from one culture to another, and be able to grow in their wisdom in that dimension as well. Um, and so those are all of the ways in which Minerva is different, who we teach, what we teach, how we teach, and where we teach. But outside of that, it's just like any other university. Um, fully accredited, 120 credit hours uh, uh, to, to graduate. All of our professors have PhDs from top institutions. Uh, there's seat time, uh, et cetera. And so um, the, the, the university itself on the surface looks just like any other institution, but in substance is, is radically different. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I, I want to dig in a little bit deeper there, but before I before I do that, um, what you've just described is such a compelling philosophy of 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 education. You know, most broadly, but but higher ed um, specifically. And I read somewhere that that the idea for this, the philosophy, really began uh, when you were an undergraduate right. at UPenn. Right. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So. So how did, so, so what, what were the forces that, that uh, uh, contributed to that, that vision emerging at, at that point in your life? Well, it, they, they, they crystallized uh, when I was an undergraduate. They actually began earlier. Um, I, I have uh, the great privilege of being my parents' son. Uh, and, uh, I don't, um, I don't say that lightly. I, uh, I can trace almost, uh, every aspect of who I am to the way that my parents brought me up. And, um, I had this amazing mixture of having, uh, my father, who is one of the world's leading molecular biologists, now structural biologists, um, that is an extraordinarily, creative thinker um, that lives in a world of far transfer uh, and, uh, and, and is therefore uh, quite hard for other people to understand how he thinks. Married to uh, my mother, who is uh, not only an extraordinary person in her own right, but one of the world's greatest teachers uh, and communicators. Mm. And her ability to explain to us the connections that my father made, applying scientific principles to making political predictions, uh, uh, thinking about uh, 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 basic uh, math as it applies to, uh, to economics, the, the way to connect and make sense of what for the rest of the world doesn't make sense allowed me to 
grow up without the gifts, the natural gifts that my parents have, but with a lens of how to understand the world in a much more integrated way. And when I went to, uh, to, to, to college, I took a course my very first year, uh, uh, co-taught by Ira Harkavy and Lee Benson, uh, Lee who's since passed away, but Ira is still uh, uh, going at it, that was purportedly about the, the university and its relation to the community. And this was at a time in, in, uh, in the field which was under quite a bit of crisis because in, throughout the 1980s, uh, the idea of service learning, which was such a core tenant of, uh, of university participation in the community, was actually demonstrated to be counterproductive, uh, where uh, a lot of students that were put into service learning opportunities became less socially inclined, less uh, 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 um, uh, oriented to give back. And there was a bit of a crisis as to say, well, how can we incorporate uh, this concept of social responsibility within an educational environment? And, but, but as part of that, the first semester of this year long course was about the history of the American university, which I knew nothing about. Uh, I was born in Israel. My parents uh, uh, learned or, or did their education in the Israeli uh, uh, educational system. And I didn't know anything about the concept of what the, the, cons what the, the fundamental ideals behind American university are, are, are all about. And it turns out most Americans don't know either. And so when, when I actually read about uh, the the origins of the American University really with Benjamin Franklin's concepts of uh, animating concepts around the liberal arts and what that means the the arts the disciplines that give you liberty that allow you to be free um, hence liberal arts uh, and the responsibility of having an educated population that isn't subject to the cross or the crown that is the sovereign themselves that have the responsibility to be able to think systematically in order to be participating in their own governance, um, it had struck me like a thunderbolt. Because what I very quickly realized is that my university, ostensibly founded by Benjamin Franklin, and frankly, no other university in the country was doing anything of the sort. They were doing a degraded version of the uh, European higher education model, which was exists to create subjects. Uh, and I'm not talking about subjects as an academic subjects. I mean, slaves, serfs, um, uh, uh, people who do not have inherent liberty and freedom. These are folks who will learn to engineer bridges because that is what the king needs build a bridge. They are the ones that will learn to be ministers because that is what the Pope needs. Um, and they learn a function in society to serve who they are uh, subject to. And what I, I the, the thunderbolt that hit me was the realization that a representative republic can only work if enfranchised citizenry knows how to think systematically. I think 2021 has started with a stark reminder for all of us about that case. And you see individuals in Congress today 
um, that are openly um, flaunting uh, the very basic tenets of representative republic who are educated at Stanford, Yale, Princeton, Harvard. And I'm just talking about the individuals who are leading an insurrection against uh, the government, right? And so you have the most highly educated, quote unquote, people, I would say certified, not educated, that have not a bone of wisdom in their bodies. And that was, if you would believe it, 28 years ago, the um, the the lightning bolt that struck me, that uh, and and this perspective that if if higher education doesn't recommit to a systematic education of its students, our republic will fall. And I will say that you know, and and by the way the way that higher education institutions used to do it was not what I was in favor of, right? The dead white men, the great books, et cetera. But at least until right. the right. late 60s, they attempted. At least they they claimed to have a curricular view. And my perspective back then in the uh, early mid 90s was that as the generation that was educated under the old system gave way to the generation educated under the new system, the post-1968 no, you know, abandonment of curricula, abandonment of systematic thinking, we're going to have a, a, a cross-sector crisis in society. Um, and unfortunately, the last 25 uh, uh, years or so have proved that prediction, um, at least in, in my view, to be, <laughs> to be coming, uh, coming back in droves. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, so, so uh, let me dig in a little bit more in terms of Minerva, because um, you've been at it now for yeah. several years. And uh, I'm curious in terms of uh, how happy you are with where you are, you know, looking at who your students are, who you enroll, their demographics, for example, have you been successful in attracting the the wide range of students that that you set out to try? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's actually one of the wonderful um, byproducts of, of applying uh, research into a real world situation. Um, it, it, it is astonishing. So just to be clear about how we do admissions, we employ no affirmative action. Yeah. We don't give preference mm. to poor students in any way uh, in the application process. Uh, we don't do special outreach to uh, underrepresented uh, uh, groups of any kind, anywhere in the world. Uh, we just don't advantage wealthy people, right? So if you think about the traditional higher education admissions funnel, right, the elite, right, the Ivy League, Stanford, et cetera, the application asks only one question, which is how rich are you? What high school did you go to? Mm -hmm. How rich are you? 200 schools represent 50% of the students in the Ivy League. Where do you think those, what do you think the zip codes are of those 200 schools, <laughs> right? Well, um, uh, what are your SAT scores? How rich are you? More correlated with household income than with IQ. Mm -hmm. um, uh, where did your parents go to school? Where did your grandparents go to school? Where did your aunts and uncles go to school? How rich are you? How rich are you? How rich are you? Do you happen to know how to row, sail, golf, play squash, uh, play water polo, um, 
how rich are you? How rich are you? How rich are you? Right. And so it's not a surprise that in the Ivy League, more than 50% of the student body come from the 1% wealthiest households in the world, the top 2% wealthiest households in the United States. That is not a surprise. It's not a surprise that the top 5% of socioeconomic distribution in 100% of highly selective universities outnumbers the bottom 60% in the United States, right? Not a surprise, right? Because there's nothing about those processes that are need blind. And remind, uh, may I remind you that these full pay students, 50 plus percent of the Ivy League students that are full pay are paying $70,000 a year. We charge $30,000 a year, right? We don't do any of the quote unquote outreach, et cetera, that these other universities do, yet 80% of our students cannot afford the $30,000 that we charge. If we were to charge $70,000, more than 90% of our students wouldn't be able to afford it. And again, all we did was not discriminate, <laughs> right? So, so it, it, it's, yeah. we didn't tilt yeah. playing fields and one should, one could make the argument that one should. And, you know, perhaps if, you know, we had a multi-billion dollar endowment uh, that was taxpayer subsidized, perhaps we, we would as well, but, um, uh, but we don't have uh, uh, those, those means. And even with that, we find ourselves to need to raise millions of dollars a year for scholarships, uh, simply because otherwise our students wouldn't be able to attend Minerva at all. So how many students do you enroll? We have about 600 students uh, across our four years. So it's a hundred and some students per class. Um, but the way that we do admissions, which is, yeah. which is uh, unique, is we don't have a concept of spots. Um, so we'll have some classes that'll have 105 students and we'll have another other class that'll have 180. And it will all depend on who meets an absolute bar, as we call it. If you're above the bar, you're in. If you're below the bar, you're not in. And we don't care who mommy and daddy are. We don't, in fact, we don't know who mommy and daddy are. We don't ask. <laughs> um, that has nothing to do with your application process. Um and we we create a a, a a a a process by which we truly get to know the student. We don't look at SAT scores. We don't look at pre-written essays that your college counselor got paid to write for you, uh, etc. So we 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 try to create uh, an understanding of who the student is and who the potential uh, uh, for it is. And so we're very very happy with. Uh, the the nature of our uh, of our student body. Uh, having said that, we would love to be in a position to have an even broader impact, which is why we also work to influence and reform other institutions of education. Mm. Yeah, which makes makes a lot of sense. Now, what what type of student, uh, in your experience, is most likely to be interested in? The, um, the humble student. Um, if if you were to think about the the what our uh, uh, admissions process looks for, it looks really for two overarching characteristics. One uh, characteristic or one aspect is that the students are very talented. 
Um, they have uh, kind of a, 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 an ability which is significant. We are a highly, highly selective institution. Um, but the second is that they're also extraordinarily hardworking. And if, if there's something that has been taught us over the past few years with from the Varsity Blue uh, 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 scandals to the various people we see in seats of power who clearly are there not because they've worked to be there and didn't deserve it, but because they were in fact handed uh, a lot of advantage. Um, there are an enormous number of people in the world and even that those that have some ability who are just flat out lazy. And there's a whole bunch of people who work very hard, but don't actually have the wherewithal to apply that hard work to real advancement. And the thing that differentiates those individuals that wind up being Minerva students is they understand that they're fortunate to have the intellectual wherewithal uh, to, to be in an advanced level, but they humble themselves enough to understand that that advantage isn't sufficient that they need to roll up their sleeves, that they need to invest and engage and work hard because that is how you actually make an impact in the world. And that is how we structure the Minerva experience. It is hard on purpose. I, I'll, I'll never forget um, we, in, in our very first year, uh, we had a small group of pilot students and uh, we had a parent of a, a prospective student that came to San Francisco, and he uh, uh, and and he he decided to to uh, uh, and I I knew this this uh, this individual through a mutual friend, uh, and he asked me could I talk to some of the existing students. I said sure, and so we went to a coffee shop and. Uh, and, and he was interrogating them. Oh, what's Minerva life like? And, and this and that. And, uh, and, and, and he says, okay, well for this part, Ben, close your ears. And, you know, I don't want, you know, let's assume that you're not here. I said, sure. Fine. They can speak freely. They don't, they don't say anything. He says, okay, how, um, how often do you guys get, uh, drunk? And the students looked at him a little bit puzzled and and he says come on you know how often do you just you know get a keg and get blitzed i know what college is like and he said why would we do that right is it well yeah you know we'll have a drink every once in a while sure but we're busy and and that was and these were college freshmen, many of them from outside the United States, right? And again, not to say that, you know, even our freshmen don't sometimes drink. They come from cultures where that, that's the case. And it doesn't say that we've never had incidents where students got drunk. We certainly have. But it is, it is simply not the culture. You don't come to Minerva to have a frat party. You come to Minerva to grow as a person. And, and that sense of humility of investing in your personal growth in not coming in saying, 
I am who I am, you know, respect my identity and I will be the same person in the future. Say, no, I'm beginning my young adulthood. I want to be a better person when I'm out coming out at the other end. That, that to me is, is the, uh, is the defining characteristic, not only by the way of students um, that are successful uh, at, at our own university, but in, in really any of our programs, be it, high school, university, executive education, it's people that have that, you know, proverbial growth mindset. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start if you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. I was fortunate enough to be enrolled in the the upcoming class. Um, what what would I actually experience? What are what are some of the building blocks that you've put together that uh, have that contribute to that? Kind so, of a few a few key key elements. Um, first and foremost, when you come in to the Minerva environment, um, you find yourself in a community that does not have a majority uh, student, except if you count females, because usually in most of our classes, females uh, outnumber males uh, somewhat, uh, which is true, of course, of, of much of higher education. Um, but you show up where the largest country represented among the student body is the United States, we're an American university, and that's you know usually a whopping 15% of the student body. <laughs> Um, and no other country is even close to 10%, right? And so you, you have a, uh, you're, you're in an environment where everybody is adjusting to a new normal. You're not assimilating in, you are, uh, you are coming into and redefining what it is as a community of people from very different walks of life. Uh, and of course, there's no 
uh, majority, not only ethnically, not only geographically, not only from a citizen's perspective, also not even from a, a socioeconomic perspective. It, you don't show up and say, oh, you know, half of the people here are children of millionaires and, you know, the rest will adjust to that, which is so uh, uh, pernicious, of course, in, in a typical highly selective university. And so you uh, you have a... a, a, a a, a reset, right? First and foremost. So that's aspect number one. Aspect number two is everybody takes the same exact curriculum in their first year. And what does that curriculum do? It provides them a common intellectual language. One of our early students told me at the end of his first year, he said, I mean, Ben, I feel like Neo from the Matrix because I see the source code of the world. Because we, we provide... Mm. A, a common language that can explain how to process what you see around you, how to think through evaluating evidence, how to understand second and third order effects, unintended consequences, how to understand methods of communicating and working effectively with other people. Not a, an opinion, not a, a personal viewpoint that we pass on as fact, but tools that that students can deploy that are empirically true, that are uh, that are, uh, are are factual, that that people can then use in whatever context that they they employ, and so that process of of acquiring that intellectual language, of being able to apply it in so many different ways, requires an enormous amount of time and effort. Right. And so your schoolwork is extraordinarily demanding. So, number one, you come into a an environment where everybody that surrounds you is unlike who you are used to. You are then confronted with an extremely demanding and rigorous learning environment, not certification environment, learning environment, where every single day you do your reading, you show up to class, our classes are small. Uh, uh, the professor will call on you. If you're not prepared, you're marked as absent. You're absent four classes in a semester. You flunk out, right? We issue this innovative technique of issuing the F, uh, which universities, of course, have abandoned decades ago. And so you are in a serious environment. Add on top of that, that you're now living as an adult. You live in a residence hall in the heart of San Francisco in your first year. And you're, uh, you have to, there's no cafeteria. There's no in-house gym. You have to cook for yourself. You have to shop for yourself. You have to clean after yourself. Uh, you want to exercise. You got to go and figure that out, right? You are living in the real world. And then on top of that, you have a whole panoply of co-curricular activities to introduce you to the leading figures, thinkers, institutions in that society. And just as you are about to get your rhythm, just as you've kind of figured out what's going on, you have to pack your bags and move to a different continent, right? And you do that again <laughs> and again and again mm -hmm. and again. And so if your goal is to come to a university where you can sit in your residence hall or go to camp the quad and get blitzed you've chosen the wrong school <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, 
you know, it, it strikes me I'm, as I'm listening to you describe these building blocks that what you've done is put together the ideal model for preparing citizens for the 21st century. When you, when you think about everything that's being written and suggested in terms of what's needed to be resilient exactly now right. more than ever, um, that, that's, that's what and, your and model Melissa, is Melissa, that to me is, is to what do. is so um, sad about the state of our current institutions of higher education because I've been talking about Minerva for a decade, and it's always that same reaction, the reaction you just had. Well, obviously, yeah. this is what every institution should be doing. If you, everybody's talking about it. I mean, clearly, you want to be exposed to different cultures. Clearly, you have to take your study seriously. You shouldn't grade inflate. Clearly, you should have a diverse student body that can learn from one another. Clearly, you should treat them as adults and learn, have them learn how to navigate uh, in, in, in the real world. Yet, why does no other university do any of those things? I'll give you the most, I'll give you the most generous uh, uh, interpretation of of why uh, of why I think that that uh, that this is occurring. All organizations, all individuals, react to incentives, and we have for a number of decades provided continued incentive for institutions to behave badly, right? If you look at the number of A's given at Yale in 1963, right, of all the grades that they gave, only 14% of grades given at Yale in 1963 were A's. In 2013, 50 years later, it was 68%. A professor of mine, Jamshed Gandhi, when I was an undergraduate, explained to me there is a devil's bargain between professor and student. And the devil's bargain is that neither is interested in having the students work hard. The professor wants to do research in their lab because that is what confers prestige in their field. The student wants to drink in the quad. And the less work the student does, the less work the professor has to do and vice versa. And so the more you grade inflate, the more you erode the purpose of the institution and therefore you erode the delivery of what happens in that institution, the happier everybody is. And employers and graduate schools and those who get the output of these institutions trust that, well, you've already screened in the early days for who can get in. And I'm either getting a student who worked their butt off uh, uh, to get into that position or who's rich and well-connected and maybe benefits me as an employee in that way, I'm happy with it. And that rot expresses itself in ways where people are shocked, shocked that there's gambling at this establishment, right? When people bribe their way into universities, the illegal way. 
right? Rather than bribing the university directly, paying them five, $10 million to build a wing uh, for a new building and admitting their, frankly, idiot children into those institutions as they do in droves. Instead, they say, well, why don't I just bribe half a million dollars to the coach and save some money? And they go to jail for that. And so we cannot look at the institutions in the current state and say that the rot isn't there. But the reason it's there is that the incentive structure has been accepting of it. The problem is we've gotten to a point where the outcomes are coming home to roost. Confidence in colleges and universities is at an all-time low. Fringe ideas of a decade ago, like don't send your students to college, are growing in popularity. The idea that truth comes from institutions of higher education is under constant assault. And the response is never a, 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 a contrition. It's never a, a perspective of, well, what have we done to contribute to that viewpoint and what can we do to reform that? It is obstinacy. What we do is perfect. What we do is great. Why don't you believe us? And it's true that there is an enormous amount of disinformation to discredit these institutions. But there's also a gigantic pile of evidence that what these institutions do is simply unacceptable. And, and that combination, when you undermine yourself from within, it's very easy for those from outside to hasten that undermining. And, and that's why Minerva exists, because we are here to reform institutions to save them. And when we don't reform institutions, rhetoric has costs. You can spend four years talking about the, uh, 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 the enemy of the people and uh, things being rigged and things like that, and people are laughing it off until you get an armed insurrection. You have to address yeah. Yeah. root cause, right? You've, you've got to address these systematic issues and unfortunately, up until Minerva, there hasn't been a pathway to say, wait a second, you can actually build prestige, thing that matters in higher education, but do so not based on lack of educational outcomes, not based on discrimination in, in admissions, but actually based in dramatic student learning growth. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's actually a really good segue to, I had wanted to ask you about ROI and, and outcomes as it relates to uh, how Minerva works. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you look at where you are right now, um, what, you, what you set out to accomplish, what, what outcomes, what results are well, you most- Well, I'll tell you probably the, the, the area that I had the most concern about I knew that our students would do extraordinarily well in professional pursuits because, again, it's the difference between taking hardworking 
you know, uh, uh, intelligent students, providing them with these cognitive tools that they can apply in real world situations. And I was, you know, and lo and behold, you get, you know, people that are placed years, uh, meaning, you know, at graduation with jobs that are hitherto unavailable for people with even three or five years of experience after an Ivy League university, you know, employers saying these are the single best employees they've ever had. How can you, you know, where did you find them as if we actually found them in some, you know, mine of talent somewhere deep in uh, uh, in some mountain. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so so we knew that would be the case. And that that is that is indeed the case. What I was worried about um, was graduate schools. Um, as is evidenced by uh, uh, by our uh, conversation, um, I am uh, not kind to the extant uh, state of, uh, of higher education. I, uh, I don't pull punches. Um, and I am very, very passionate um, about uh, reforming the state of higher education, which indicates that certainly in undergraduate education, which is, of course, our, our, our big thrust in the world of higher ed, um, that there really does need to be a, a fundamental rethink of, uh, of the approach to undergraduate education. And so given my less than glowing remarks about traditional institutions, I was worried that when our students would apply for PhD programs, graduate programs at those institutions, that they wouldn't be looked at kindly. Um, and, um, and the reality was, is that the exact opposite occurred. Um, yeah, so to give you an example, in our first graduating class, we had 106 graduating students. We had four students apply for postgraduate positions at Harvard University, two uh, in PhD programs, two in, in what is effectively research programs that are meant for people with graduate degrees. All four were accepted. Um, we have uh, another student doing a, a PhD in, in neuropsychology at Princeton. We have another one doing a PhD in physics uh, at, at uh, Berkeley with a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, we have another one who did a master's in uh, physics at uh, Cambridge after turning down the Perimeter Institute, which is perhaps the top theoretical math institute in the world in, in, in Canada. Uh, we have five students doing PhD programs at top 25 uh, computer science programs, one of whom convinced uh, uh, the University of Chicago, where he's doing his, his uh, computer science PhD, to let him matriculate in a master's in international relations at the Fletcher School in Boston simultaneously and vice versa. And so what the, 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 the great thing, and, and really, and, and we know that this is true of, of especially PhD admissions uh, at, at universities where the PhD admissions process doesn't select rich people. It selects future colleagues, selects good people, right? And so and so right. When, when push comes to shove, right. graduate programs fight for the very best uh, 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 graduates and the very best graduates are Minerva graduates because they they they've learned in the systematic way, and so what I'm most pleased with is that not only was this apparent in 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 the corporate world, but for further study, uh, that's also been very apparent. I yeah, did, wow. it turns so out you, not. You didn't need to worry after all, <laughs> and. Yeah, and and you've actually recently yeah, that's right. So so we we, we, we at Minerva, in our own right? uh, university we we have um, 
a master's program in decision analysis, uh, which we've also graduated to uh, cohorts of students in, and, and we're now doing the uh, intake for our fifth class. We have our third and fourth uh, being uh, or going through the program. It's a two-year program. It's done uh, actually not residential. It's remote for working professionals. Uh, and it's how to actually think about doing decisions uh, in a systematic way. Um, and, and that's actually an area where we're uh, uh, very uh, focused on, on growing that program. Um, and we're engaged in some conversations with uh, with uh, other institutions as well as to how to rethink some some graduate education as well. So is that an area that yeah you know the the more generally going forward the reality of of undergraduate education, especially when you try to do it in such a pure way as we do, is that it's it's just extraordinarily expensive. Um, and scaling an undergraduate program mm -hmm. for a brand new institution with a very, very small endowment um, and the need to fundraise uh, constantly is challenging. And so you have to find other ways to both broaden your impact as an institution, but also to support the institution in, uh, uh, in other ways. And graduate programs are one way of doing that. Um, and so we're 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 expanding our uh, graduate programs. We're also looking at, uh, and we're also not just looking at. We're also uh, uh, launching a broader certification program for a high school uh, a program called the Minerva Baccalaureate that uh, uh, that we've begun, um, and and trying to have much bigger reach as uh, uh, an institution than what we can afford to do for our uh, group of undergraduates. So the Minerva Baccalaureate is, is actually a partnership that we, we have done between the Minerva Schools of KGI, soon to be Minerva University, uh, and the Minerva Project, which is the corporation that helps set up the university. Um, the, the university, of course, is a nonprofit. The corporation built the technology uh, and, uh, and, and tools that are necessary to deliver a Minerva education uh, that the university uses. And, the, uh, and this collaboration enabled us to create a system that would break the teach to the test paradigm of the associate, the uh, advanced placement, the international baccalaureate, uh, and the A level uh, regime, right? Where you study a certain subject, you take a test, again, you certify as opposed to learn. Um, and, and rather than creating this adversarial relationship between educator slash teacher and certifier, uh, the AP, IB, uh, A-level uh, authorities. Uh, instead, we wanted to create a, a, a program that builds capacity. And so we, uh, a Minerva Baccalaureate School offers a three to four year high school program, either 9th through 12th or 10th through 12th, depending on uh, how advanced the students are, um, that will teach the core elements, the core subjects of a high school curriculum, your uh, math, science, uh, social studies, slash history, language arts, uh, combined with a fifth track on personal growth and development, uh, a theme that is obviously important for us, um, 
but we'll do it in an integrated way. We're learning objectives that may be first appear in math, then show up in history and personal development. And those that first show up in English will show up in science and math, et cetera. And you develop a capacity within the schools by providing the teachers the kinds of lesson plans and support that they need, training, coaching, mentoring, uh, data analysis on what they do in the class to help them move along the intellectual development of each and every student. And in doing so, you then forego the need for a central testing authority because you're actually building capacity and capability within the schools and the teachers. You also reject the idea of teaching to a test because there are no tests. You provide constant formative feedback for students, both in-class right. participation yeah. as well as schoolwork, using not just a concept of depth of mastery, but again, this breadth of application. And so for every learning objective that we introduce in the Minerva Baccalaureate, students get 60 different dimensional views of their applications, not only across subject, but also whether or not they are using that learning objective in work that they produce versus critiquing the use of others of that learning objective, whether they are prompted to apply it or do it spontaneously, whether or not they can do it uh, verbally in, in an instant response versus in a uh, a short form written uh, form where they get asked to input something during class or whether they work on it across time. And so that combination of transfer gives you a rich view of the student's mastery, again, not just in a certain point of time, not just in a linear way of depth, but in a breadth perspective. And Minerva University, for those advanced students that take the four-year program, will actually certify the final year for 32 credit hours of university level credit. So a full year of college of the Minerva um, a general education that students in the Minerva Baccalaureate can benefit from. So, well, thank you. Thank you. It's, it's yeah, we're, boy, we're very excited about it. We've, we've uh, even though we only launched it a few months ago, yeah. uh, it has received uh, just a, an enormous uh, level of interest. So, um, oh, I yeah, I would I would think so. You know, for for somebody who did not uh, start out thinking of themselves as an entrepreneur, you have created a a highly innovative model that. Uh, has all kinds of uh, legs to run with. I, I, you know, I, I, which, which leads me, I have a couple final questions, but I, what's, do you have a, like a, a new dream for Minerva University, you know, what, and what does that look like? No, we're, 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 we're certainly not, not stopping. Stop, um, uh, but here. I also realized, look, when I started uh, Minerva a decade ago, now a little over a decade ago, I was 35 years old. Um, and I knew that at my family, um, we die at 91 and we work until we die. Um, so I, I knew that we, we I had a, about half a century um, <laughs> to, to, to make the kind of systematic impact in the world of education that uh, that I wanted to make. And so 
the reality is, is that it's going to take time. Um, but I am convinced that, especially given the fact that we're already doing high school curricula, probably a decade ahead of when I thought we would be doing it uh, initially, but the fact that we're already doing professional learning, we're getting into graduate program uh, uh, programs, et cetera, that the Minerva movement is going to have a widespread effect in the world of education. It may take another decade or two um, to start getting to that scale, but it, it's there's an enormous amount of work to do. And, and the only way to do it is to relentlessly provide the example that you can achieve the very best by committing and structuring an educational program around purpose as opposed to around certification or surface level uh, offerings. Mm, boy. Well, and, and, you know, as you think about traditional bricks and mortar institutions, uh, is there a role that, that they can play? Are there opportunities for, for partnerships, for example, and uh, you know, let let me give you a, a a really concrete example. I I direct a doctoral program in higher education leadership, for example, at at Baypath University, and we like to say we like to think that we are preparing the next generation of higher education leaders who will think differently, um, who do have purpose, who act with purpose, who know how to be catalysts for change, all those good things. Um, you know, are there, are there opportunities for programs, for institutions? Absolutely. Uh, and so we have uh, partnered with institutions to launch Minerva programs uh, in the United States, in uh, Hong Kong, in India, in Spain, uh, in the Dominican Republic. Um, we have uh, uh, worked with uh, uh, high school, not only in some of those countries, but also in Korea, um, we have worked with uh, corporations, not only in those countries, but also in Japan. There, we exist to reform education. And so the only way that we're successful is if we have other institutions join us in this process. And that, and what does joining us mean? It's, it's very simple. It means anchoring your program in wisdom. Um, it means rethinking how you approach your curriculum, rethinking the pedagogical methodologies that you use to ensure that your students learn that curriculum and rethinking the feedback mechanisms that you give to students to ensure that they're learning it in ways that make sense. Um, and any institution, high school, university, or professional learning that wants to, in, to join the movement, to work with us on this, we're delighted to talk to. Yeah, well, I and I would imagine there there may be many. Um, my sense is that there is just a wave of rethinking happening right now, and that what you're doing uh, is is exactly the right model for these times. So, um, you know, I'm I'm happy to help uh, use this podcast to help spread the word about that. Uh, let me let me end with we have a signature question we ask everyone who comes on the show and but i'm going to give you your own version of this question um so as a successful educational and business entrepreneur 
How might you advise emerging higher ed leaders, thinking of those who sit in our classroom at Baypath in the doctoral program, to think about the future of higher education? Do you have a few essentials that uh, you think should be on their radar? And and this is really, I guess, getting to your vision, so, you know, your vision for the future. One thing that I urge everyone entering this field to grab onto is the sense of responsibility, which unfortunately I think most people have forgotten. The responsibility is not to the learner. Mm. And that's a shocking uh, 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 question, uh, kind of perspective because, wait a second, what do you mean? We're, we're in this for the learner. No, we're not. We're in this for humanity. We're in this for the sake of the world. There is no question that higher education is the gatekeeper for those individuals who will make decisions of consequence, decisions that impact the lives of others far more than they impact their own. You could be a CEO of a corporation and make a series of disastrous decisions, lose people their livelihood, destroy the environment, have all sorts of terrible things that occur. And what happens to you? You get a giant severance package. You go and consult. You make a lot of money. But the lives of others were adversely impacted. You could be a politician. That is, forget the extremes that we've seen uh, uh, this year, but just makes absolute disastrous policy decisions, even voted out of office. What happens to you? you make more money, right? So our responsibility <laughs> isn't to produce more of those. It isn't to say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to measure my impact by how successful and selfish my graduates are. It's to equip them to be wise, if you graduate a wise learner, guess what? They're going to be successful. But when it comes to the kinds of complex decision points of their lives where they're making decisions that have consequence on others, they're going to think about unintended consequences. They're going to think systematically and they're going to stop themselves because they realize that small decisions that maybe in their short-term interests are very much to the long-term detriment of their fellow citizen. And that's what everybody working in the field of education needs to keep at the front of their mind. Every single time they think, should I coddle the student? Should I give them the easy A? Should I pass the person who, who, who doesn't deserve it? Should I spend extra time guiding the person? Should I comment on a, a, a perspective that is way off base? You have to remember that at some point, these people are going to have influence and effect on others, even if it's just their own children. And, and that's our job. And I think higher education, if, if, again, the events of January 2021 don't wake up 
this sector to what highly educated graduates of the sector have perpetrated. And we don't look internally as a sector and think about that we need to reform. I don't know what will. Ben, thank you so, so very much for this conversation. Your uh, your insights, your wisdom are compelling. And uh, I, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of the sector. You have a voice and a perspective. Very much appreciated, Melissa. Thank you for heard. having me. So thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of Chella, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities for higher ed professionals, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, be sure to review and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. You are in for a treat with next week's conversation featuring the highly interesting and accomplished Dr. Eve Solomon Fernandez. Prez Eve, as she's affectionately called, serves as president of Greenfield Community College in Western Mass, which makes this her third college presidency. As a self-described geek and prolific reader and writer, she's a recognized thought leader, writing and speaking on issues related to reinventing higher education, rural innovation, equity, and women's leadership. She's been named by diverse issues in higher education as one of the top 25 women in higher education. Most recently, Prez Eve was one of 13 college presidents nationwide to receive the prestigious AACNU Cengage Inclusion Scholarship. She is indeed a wise and leading voice in higher ed today that we all need to be listening to. Be sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss out on this upcoming episode. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.